Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. We are all made of star stuff. We are the way for the universe to know itself. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we have two very special guests with us, Pat and Lee from, is it Diesel Shot? Indeed. That it is. Or if you prefer, Liesel Shot works as well. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, from, from, from Diesel Shot, the co-creators of the new sci-fi space-themed TTRPG, Changed Stars. Pat and Lee, welcome to Undercommon Taste. I feel very welcomed. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you for joining us. So would you like to start off by just giving a little bit of an introduction, tell us who you are, what you do, that sort of thing? Ah, yes. Well, so you see, I'm an angel and she is a demon. I always tell the truth and she always lies. And these are our riddles three to pass our doors. Indeed. What Lee said was correct. To get to the other side. (laughs) All right. (laughs) But yeah, so I am Lee. Being an anarchic, I've published a previous tabletop role-playing game that was kind of a fly-by-night, Aquadiesel Age. It's a D100. If any of you in the audience, I suspect you may be, are game designers. You might have thought, if I made my own game, this is how I would do it. And let's just say that in the process of designing a game, you might decide that some of those things were not a great idea for the same reasons that you've never heard of Aquadies Age. Change <laughs> uh, stars, we're not making those mistakes. Uh, we're, absolutely, we're going for a very eminently teachable, very gameable, straightforward design that does not sacrifice depth, but it also does not have anything that I would term needless complexity. And I am the mechanics boy. Pat is the setting creator and the artiste. Indeed. All the broad level, high level lore stuff and various minutia come down from her. And I work mostly when it comes to lore on like connective tissue where, you know, like I might create worlds or organizations and stuff, but it's kind of going through her in terms of realizing her vision. And that is more or less how Change Stars is produced. Yes. So we and I have been working together now on Diesel Shot, which is our Twitch stream and creative partnership name for uh, about uh, over two years now. And, you know, about a year ago, we just we started playing off-channel this game that we were working on called Change Stars. And, uh, it, I mean, it eventually became called Change Stars. But basically the concept was I wanted to make a game that my friends would enjoy playing, and it just grew from there. So I'm the illustrator as well as the directive force of the lore, as Lee mentioned. All the illustrations that will exist in the book are created by me. Black and white ink art, traditional, on paper, because I'm very bad at digital art so far. I'm going to work on that, but before I can get there, uh, I'm going to publish this book. And yeah, I'm extremely excited to see this kind of dream get fulfilled and brought into reality. And Lee is far too humble. Aqua Diesel Age is a very fun game. We've been playing it now on our channel for... Uh, Two years, I think. Yeah, and if you have a TI-84 on hand to calculate armor and damage differentials, then yeah. it goes swimming. <laughs> well, exactly. It's just a different kind of game than Change Stars. Change Stars is geared towards simple one-shot play, but also has the depth to expand into campaigns and stuff. I just generally think in one-shots because of my ADHD. I'm like, huh, how can I make a short, succinct, single night's worth of gaming and to not think about anything much broader. But if you're a campaign aficionado, then there's certainly a space for it in the game as well. Yeah, we've run short campaigns of the game. It's pretty fun uh, in that format. One of the things that we're focusing on tidying up as we go out here is like the different ways to build your character and progression over time. 
I would say that the game is equivalently fine for campaigns as it is for one-shots, but if your group is used to an environment like Shadowrun or D&D, and you're really in it for like, ah, yeah, I'm planning for the day I'm going to be level 20, well, there is a bit of that, but it's not going to take you two years of playing it to get there. So if you want that to be definitely dangled before you, it's not going to, depending on the rate of XP, it's not going to take you forever. I think I like that you've made that consideration because that is a huge issue is everybody, you know, initially does want to go and run. Like with D&D, they do want these long epic campaigns, but then life happens and people can't show up to a table or things go or cars break down or new relationships form or there's babies or, you know, just anything happens. And so those are kind of harder to manage. So the concept of like a one shot or being able to link a bunch of one shots together to make a campaign, I think is going to make this game a lot more accessible to people yeah and i mean one of the things that we think about when we look at other games we're like what are the major barriers to actually getting this to the table to giving a run of it the more information that you need to have absorbed and digested before you can begin to throw the dice the greater barrier there is and let's be real here one thing that indies will sometimes make the mistake of is imagine well if you build it they will come it's a dumb phrase that doesn't apply to anything in the tabletop space particularly not now and also not in the past if you build it and it is really hard to get into, well, how many obtuse, incredibly niche games have you sat down and forced your brain into when there was no support for it in the broader internet? Nobody was talking about it. There wasn't fields of YouTube videos covering it. There wasn't a wiki. You know, how often did you do that? I think for most people, the answer is never. As an indie designer in these spaces, my answer is, yes, sometimes, but not too often. And I rarely play those that I even get a grasp on. So I think that that's something we kept in mind. I did it once. Yeah. <laughs> How was it? How was it? It was, um, I think it was Pavel Dombowski's revision of uh, Jason McCall's unpublished Fallout pen and paper from way back when. I think the first Fallout tabletop I played was using that. Is that the one with like... You can download the PDF and like the main sites in Russian or something? Yes. It's Russian or... I want to say it's Romanian. I want to say- Doesn't it have... It has percentile damage resistance. Yes, it? it it has. I love that. Like anything, like the automatic weapons, they mm. literally have an equation that you have to fill out in order to figure out how many bullets hit your target. And you want to know what the best part is? That game actually is quite supported because it has a wiki that seems, if I recall correctly a few years ago, it had a wiki that had most things on it. And the manual was actually like kind of well laid out compared to some of the things I'm thinking. Yeah. (laughs) That's the shallow end of the pool. And yeah, Pat, if you've ever been wondering what we played when Max references the old campaign with the conductor hat, that's what Max. Holy shit. I was going to say, this game is great if you're like, you're an engineering student or like, you know, a graduate student in the sciences because yeah. Kind of like Lee joked before, you got that TI-84, you can sit there, plug an equation in and start, you know, and that's... Well, I mean, if you have your TI-83, you just write yourself a program. Right. <laughs> and then you just punch in which yeah. weapon that you're using, and it just spits out the results. Uh, now, in its defense, and this is a very hot take on Twitter these days, if you ignore lots of the rules like I'm pretty sure Max did, it's a perfectly fine experience. But as my goal as a designer is to ensure you do not have to, you know, refix my game... Because the eternal phrase, oh, it's great if you have a good dungeon master, means, yeah, the designer didn't really do a good job, and you're going to have to cover for him. And that is not what I am trying to put out of the world, because we don't want to be a one-and-done, bang-off Kickstarter that sits on a shelf, unused, collecting dust, or comes out once, and then never again. We want adoption, we want a teachable game, we want a learnable game, we want people to talk about and play our games. And that means that if you don't have an established IP, or you know, you're 
company's name doesn't rhyme with Slidgers of the Boast, you can't just trust that people are going to pick it up and give it the old college try and fix it themselves. Right. You got to hand them something sleek, something sexy, and that's something that's going to be in your face explaining itself swiftly without being super simple or utterly derivative. Yeah. Without rambling on like me when I'm high. <laughs> <laughs> I think where we're coming with a lot of this too is there is even just outside of TTRPGs, but just, you know, tabletop board games in general, anything more than a couple page pamphlet is going to be too much for most people. I mean, you pick up something like Yahtzee and people love Yahtzee and Yahtzee is okay. You sit there, roll the dice, and you kind of count out or Monopoly. Monopoly is fairly easy to pick up. And I've seen some board games where, you know, it comes with a small novella. I'm one of those ones that I enjoy. I do enjoy reading that kind of stuff. I was the one that when I'd get the old NES games, I'd actually go and read the lore booklet for things. Oh, there's a lot of lore change stars. Don't yeah. worry. But yeah, I understand that I am the odd one in that case. So the fact that you guys have brought this in mind and have kind of made this user-friendly, as we would say, says a lot to your forethought and your game creation to start with. So awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's not my first rodeo, and I definitely didn't do it this way in my first rodeo, but I'm trying to keep it in mind. We'll see what the execution looks like. In terms of the board game sphere, I think it's Fantasy Flight Games. At first, I was like, why is it this way? But then I was like, oh, no, this is brilliant. They'll have a much smaller book. They'll like have a quote-unquote rule book. There'll be a rules reference, and there'll be a Your First Game pamphlet that is, like, small, right? Right. You'll pick that shit up and you, it'll tell you, here's where you put all the thingy thingies. Here is what you will do on your first turn. Here's what you will do on every turn thereafter. And it will walk you through page by page sequentially the play of the game. And if the game is designed well and flows well, and it's not that 140K game that has a bajillion parts that I have that nobody <laughs> ever wants to play with me, then it'll probably work right the second time. And you'll probably learn a lot the first time. And I don't think that that's unacceptable, but I do think from a board game perspective or from like an overarching mechanics perspective, like you don't want people to have more than one quote unquote learning session. Let me put it that way. Right. Like you may still be learning things, but for me, when I was redesigning the spaceship pools for the fourth time, I was like, if you can teach this to somebody on their second session of change stars, that is acceptable. Not ideal. I think we've got down to a first session teach, but anything beyond that, like, Oh, sorry, the hacking rules are for people who've played this game for at least a month. Uh, but what if what you want to do in the game is hack? Then you might as well it's not. So we're trying to shoot for something that you can pick up, get into a mess, particularly when you have a dream weaver who knows what's up and just sort of go from there. If they're familiar enough to teach it and the game is super teachable, like, oh yeah, that means that you add an edge dice and oh, that symbol came up. Here's what that means for you. Two things are showing, level two shock. Ba-da, ba-da. And then that can sort of bump off from there and you learn the language you understand the concepts. And then hopefully before long, you're doing things like, well, I got a twist. Could I use it to do this? And maybe that's not technically speaking one of the default twists. But we make it clear that those twists are examples, right? Twists being you succeeded, but you also get an extra success so you can do something on the side with it, a stunt, if you will. Gotcha. So we'll try and get into talking a little bit more about the mechanics here in a minute. But can we just start off backpedal just a minute? And yeah. for people who may not be familiar with Change Stars... What is Changed Stars? Yes, yes, that is a very good question and perhaps one we should have gotten into first. So, Changed Stars is, I've been calling it queer-themed feminist sci-fi, which is, you know, a lot of buzzwords, but uh, when you get down to it, it is my attempt to create a modern, interesting science fiction world 
for those who uh, love Alien and Star Wars and a lot of the classic sci-fis, but want to see maybe a modern take on it and something that is decidedly removed from the kind of old boys club concepts that get thrown around pretty often with Heinlein and Orson Scott Card's sci-fi futures, where it's human military boldly going forth and conquering other worlds and then maybe having some sadness about all the horrible things they did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that ever gets really addressed all that much. And in Heinlein particularly, it gets anti-addressed. <laughs> so I'm basically trying to create a science fiction future that is post-patriarchal and focused on the fledgling union between different divergent factions that have come together now and are hoping to uh, just kind of live their daily lives in space and help each other out. And that's kind of the broad scale of things. And on the nitty gritty scale of things, your average gameplay in Change Stars is more or less exploring the world and doing small space-related things that overcome challenges and perhaps put everybody else on a better foot. So there is a lot of lore, and I am an absolute world-building buff, and I've done so much dense world-building that I'm going to have to section some of it off in the, you don't necessarily need this to play, but if you want to know more about the Thren cuisine of their various original homeworlds or the Rastian languages on this given home ship, you can actually find out information on that. Maybe more towards the back of the book. Because <laughs> you don't necessarily need to know actual linguistic stuff to play this game. But it's there if you want it. So the overarching history of this world is that, you know, in the far-flung future, about 200 years from now, humanity is a space-faring species. We kind of piggybacked on some precursor technology we found and didn't talk that much about it. And after a while, the kind of well-intentioned coalition uh, governments that formed the old world powers collapses and Mars takes over and the Martian Empire declares itself the human empire after conquering all of human colonized space. And because this is some sort of militaristic junta, they need to continue fighting and conquering in order to maintain the social structure that they've built. And essentially, it is disgusting imperialistic force that goes off and does all those horrible things Heinlein said were great ideas back in the day. And then they try to like pwn Ender's game on a peaceful insectoid species that they find. And the insectoid species fights back and is joined by an ally of their own. And pretty soon we have the Sister Species Alliance formed of the uh, insectoid Marai and the um, kind of tiefling-like Thren. And they actually beat back the uh, horrific fascist empire of mankind and attempt to uh, help them rebuild. And over the next 50 years, there is a kind of transitional period between government that formed to oversee this change and then by the end of this 50-year period known as the Great Transition, self-describing of course, the um, Artemisian commune forms of the territory now largely decolonized of the former human empire and the uh, Artemisian commune joins forces with the two other species primary governments forming the large overarching organization known as the Trinity. And it's been 50 years since the formation of the Trinity. And the people of this large interspecies union 
are still working to overcome a lot of the challenges that they were facing 100 years ago, such as lingering human empire technology that's dangerous and can cause problems. There's a budding revivalist movement of neo-imperials led by kind of some uh, rich backwater tycoon types. And there's piracy. There's a lot of challenges that this new fledgling government is working to overcome. And that's where the player characters come in. Largely, they are servants of this government in one shape or form, be they space truckers trying to get medicine to far off unsupported frontier worlds that were left behind by the Empire, or if they're pirate hunters or any number of different jobs that they can do. But basically, it's kind of like you're an actual person, not some gold bikini space hero. And you're trying to, uh, I mean, you can actually have the gold bikini, it's probably high friend fashion, but uh, you know, <laughs> you're not some sort of dedicated space hero. You're an average everyday person trying to get by in space. No, I like that. Certainly. And there's there's opportunities to build different characters and to create different sorts of parties or up XP or character. But yeah, the default assumed scale is you're a regular person in space and some shit's going on. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things used to be the tagline. No, I like that. That's kind of One, I see the opportunity to kind of discuss a lot of political commentary and social issue and philosophy within the game, which I think is great. I'm kind of uh, reminiscing that scene with Gandalf in Lord of the Rings where he talks about, you know, it's not great power that changes things, but it's the small act of simple people and love and all that stuff. That's really the fundamental force. So, yeah, I think that is a good theme to have in games a lot of the time. Because, again, not everything is Dirk Squarejaw coming in and kicking in a door. As much fun as it is to have Captain Dirk Squarejaw from time to time, that's not every game. Exactly. Yeah, and there's plenty of games out there that do give you the Dirk Squarejaw experience. And those are super fun and uh, amazing, and you should totally play them. But, you know, sometimes you need something different. Sometimes you don't want that power trip. You want to kind of earn that feeling of reward coming from a low-powered situation and still surviving and overcoming the challenges that you're thrown up against. Now, with your lore building in the game, I grew up reading old pulp sci-fi, Clark and Heinlein and Pornell and lots of these. I do see some possible influences, like you talk about this 50-year reign with the possible tiefling-type race. Have you read or any influence maybe by like Childhood's End? Or you've got your three species, so I was thinking maybe something like a Starcraft or even a Stargate, like a Linus type thing, where you've got the three inner working species. That's a seems to be a common theme with a lot of sci-fi stories that tends to work really, really well. And I was wondering where you drew your inspiration and influence from. Thank you, thank you. There's a large quantity of influences going in here, and it would be reductive to say that any one thing is what I am facing these dynamics off of. And there's more than just three, although there's definitely kind of the main three that are in the Trinity. There's a lot of different alien species that you can play. All the alien species that are going to be covered in the core book that are sentient are going to be playable, except for three, I believe, which we're kind of saving for expansions. Oh, awesome. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> but uh, but like basically the fact that you're a you know, what we might consider a monstrous looking species such as a two-headed shrimp centipede creature with a central mouth that doesn't mean you can't play that species that's called the Musegui and they have their own place in space a lot of them are pirates but a lot of them are also merchants and functional members of the, the Trinity Society and you know just because it's a weird looking to you species it's still going to be very playable so yeah, let me talk about influences instead of going into my nitty-gritty biological <laughs> love for the news. Why? So yes, I've read all those classics, 
you know, I haven't read a lot of Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land is pretty good, I think, up until the end. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of influences of a variety of sorts. I obviously must mention the classic feminist sci-fi greats who have inspired me. Uh, terrible names. Ah, oh, God, sorry. No, there's a lot of inspiration. But yes, I've also been inspired not just by classic sci-fi. I've also been inspired by, you know, some of the contemporary stuff. Starcraft, for example, you've mentioned. There's kind of a similar dynamic. Uh, Mass Effect is actually kind of a big one for at least the Thren inspiring them. They're kind of, they're not off-brand Asari, but, you know, there are some similarities in their dynamic as the kind of uh, peace-oriented, alliance-forming type of people. Also, they're very androgynous species, by human standards at least, and by rat standards, and by a few other species with more sexual dimorphism. For instance, the Veer in this setting are very sexually dimorphic, and they also think that the Thren are quite androgynous, but the Thren don't. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of inspiration from, I mean, Ender's Game is obviously a source of insectoid species with kind of hive mind functions, eusocial. But more than Ender's Game, there's the Humanx Coalition series of books. And a lot of this is also just inspired by my own personal tastes and interests. And also, this is going to be a strange one to throw out here, but Lego. (laughs) Okay. That was an unexpected curveball, but you have my curiosity, so awesome. I grew up a huge fan of Lego. And my all-time favorite Lego theme when I was growing up, you know, this was like the early 90s, was they were literally straight up called insectoids. I remember and they were these yeah, fun those. people uh, with cool nippy space bobblehead helmets, and they uh, had insect themed Lego spaceships, which were very fun to me as a kid. That's actually somewhat how I have uh, my middle name. <laughs> and I drew a lot of inspiration from the stories that I would tell as a kid and kind of how they grew up and aged. And I've always had these kind of concepts in my head about interesting interspecies dynamics and stuff. So yeah, a lot of diverse inspiration going into this. I can tend to be a little rambly. I'm sorry, it's the, uh, the ADHD. No, no, you're perfectly fine. It's, you're, you're doing great. I'm sure, I'm maintaining a good uh, steady flow of thought here, but I think I've covered a good bit of the stuff that I was trying to spew out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm also a huge fan of the Mass Effect series. The whole proper trilogy, and I do say the whole proper trilogy, because it stopped at Mass Effect 3. (laughs) And drama what? Yeah. (laughs) They didn't go to any other galaxies, any other solar systems, (laughs) or galaxies. Galaxies? Yeah, galaxies. galaxies. Yeah, they went to a few solar systems. Yeah. But yeah, I can see where you're coming at with talking about the Asari and that influence that you're pulling in. I'm personally partial to the fan theory that the Banshees from Mass Effect 3 are what the Asari actually look like. And because they have a lot of the bionic abilities that they project a form that looks more attractive subjectively to the individual races that they're interacting with. Yes. That's kind of really cool. Because there's that scene in Mass Effect 2 where they're in the nightclub and they're going out for this Solarian's quote-unquote bachelor party. And the Solarian and there's a Turian and a human, they're all sitting around this table while this Asari stripper is doing her thing. And they're all talking about how, no, she looks like my race. 
Yeah, everybody sees the Asari as different. I love that. The Asari are awesome, but there's no psionics in Change Stars. But I do like that the world building of Mass Effect uses that to their advantage. And they're like, yeah, no, so they can change how they look to different species. They're exactly what they look like, totally, 100%. Don't question it. They're all the sexy blue space babes. <laughs> we have described Change Stars in the past as hard-er sci-fi. We try and create a baseline, and as Pat mentioned, this is a bit of a distinction between the lore that we're going to slap you with right up front and the lore that's available to go looking for if you want it. Everyone's going to get off the lore bus at their preferred location, and what they're going to run is still going to be Change Stars, although with any role-playing game, it's your own instantation of the world, right? And so we have things that cue closer to like extrapolations from real science, but a friend of ours ran one of the longest Change Stars campaigns I'm aware of with us off-stream, and it featured... Force fields and tractor beams. Fun fact, neither of those are features of Change Stars. <laughs> They're not in the lore and basis for them in what we see as like the quote-unquote predictable, understandable future, right? But that story wasn't less Change Stars because of those elements. And we actually incorporated a lot of the world building into the actual book. Like the Spirit of Rin, for example, was introduced in that campaign. Yeah, the Rast homeship was there. These massive space structures, think of on a scale like a Death Star, that like move through space that the Rast live in because they don't have a fixed solar system to hang out in. Oh yeah, we didn't mention the Rast are space otters. Yeah, they're very cute space otters. I want space uh, otters. Yeah. <laughs> and stuff like Trank Dart ammunition being the common way that the Trinity Peacekeepers try and you know, prevent casualties while taking down threats. That sort of stuff got absorbed. But other things, you know, it's about the vibe. It's about the spirit of the thing, and it's about your interpretation, and we try and keep that in mind, because obviously, Change Stars in part existed because there was a pretty restrictive setting that we were gonna play a game in, and our friends were like, I, we don't really like that setting. We're like, well, we like the system. Let's, uh, you know, Pat made something that was a bit different, and uh, we really enjoyed it. It obviously has gone very far, but at the end of the day, people are gonna do what they're gonna do with the setting once it's in their hands, and we are not like, oh, you're doing it wrong, if that happens. If they want to change stars, it looks a bit more like Star Trek or Star Wars than the tech level we put in there, then that's absolutely fine. I mean, I think that for us as the game's designers, we're here to hand you the default package, not with like an implied setting stars without number style, which I actually tend to find kind of frustrating, but with something that works together. And if you want to start making changes to it, all you got to do is consider the cause and effect of well, if everybody has energy weapons, then why is anybody bothering to manufacture bullets? Or why is the ammunition not like, you know, falling out of trees, blah, 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 blah. And all of those are eminently answerable and everyone's going to have their own answer for it, how they run the game. I gotcha. Ooh, if I may interject real quick in a more directed fashion on the topic of inspirations. So the person that I was going to mention earlier is Ursula K. Le Guin's Left Hand Darkness. I really love a lot of her world building in that. Another thing, though, that I didn't mention that I think does bear worth in bringing up is that the dynamic of the three species is inspired by me trying to very consciously invert the dynamic of the kind of world building around, believe it or not, aliens, the uh, alien franchise. So, like, I basically tried to do an anti-xenomorph, something that kind of resembles the xenomorph and functions in a eusocial uh, hive-based society, aka the Mirai but it is not an evil killing machine in the slightest. Okay. And then the precursor species of, like, the engineers. I'm not a huge fan of actually what Ridley Scott did with the uh, follow-ups, but, you know, I can't say that in certain spheres or all okay. My head cut off. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> 
I inverted the kind of precursor species, which to me seemed like a species of all kind of like old Greek dudes, and I made them be the kind of very friendly androgynous species of the Thren. And, you know, keeping in vain with that, the Thren are actually like one of the oldest species in space right now, aside from the Newsquad, who I keep bringing up are two-headed shrimp <laughs> uh, people with central mouths. They're very fun. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to do any kind of sci-fi without having, you know, a slight tip of the hat to Ridley Scott because the Alien franchise has been so fundamental in so much sci-fi. So I like that you're taking it a slightly different direction, which is great. And I wanted to ask Lee, so Pat has made this, which seems very large, immersive, and still adaptable world. So how does the mechanics of the game work? Like, how long am I going to take to sit there and like, I'm going to make my first character. Am I going to need like a four hour session zero to build up my character? Or is that something I can just throw some dice in a tray and say, I got it. If you are with people who are pretty familiar with it already, it's going to be done inside of a half an hour and you're going to be do, 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 do. Some things have been done to make it simpler. So, like, the reality is there are these things called archetypes in the game that are kind of analogous to a class. You don't actually need one. You just need to conform to one of three schemas. But if you don't want to have to worry about that shit, which most people won't their first time, you'll pick an archetype. It'll give you some suggestions. You'll say, yeah, I'm going with that. You'll see that this stat is the best. You'll spread them around. And then, basically, depending on if you're using digital or physical means to record information is probably going to be the biggest limiter. Right now, there's a. I've done a big character generation rewrite. I've done a big character talent rewrite, and I'm making the character generation section work. But I can tell you that for people who know it, who play it long enough, made enough characters, you approach the level of being able to make a character without even looking at the book, which I don't think I'll ever do with D and D. Right, which is a game I like and play very often. Comma, however, <laughs> that's never going to happen. I don't have that kind of a brain for that sort of information. But yeah, with character generation, you absolutely do not need a dedicated session for it unless you're going to, if you're the kind of group who does session zero character gen, less for mechanics and more for let's figure out who we are and what we're doing in this world. That's wonderful. I encourage it. Beautiful. But you don't need that just to get the characters out the gate. Pre-gens, archetypes, they all serve the purpose of getting you there faster. But at the end of the day, you don't need either of them. You don't even need to use the archetypes. You can just a, B, or C. There's three archetype formats, and they're very simple. If you like, say, Marauder, they are a melee bruiser. Maybe you do not like one of their skills. That's fine. You swap out Resolve for something else, as long as you don't change the number of tag skills that archetype is giving you. You haven't violated the schema, and that's true for all the archetypes. So you can always do a simple one-to-one replacement. If you're like, I don't want a talent from this tree, I want a talent from this tree, boom done. As long as you're cutting in at level one, you're fine. Nice. Yeah. So it's very, ideally in my, in my like wet dream, how this is going to work. You might play a pre-gen the first time. Maybe you'll see the archetypes and be like, no, I can do this. And it's a very nice, well laid out section with five simple steps. And like step five is like picking a gear package. So four steps. That's your first time. Your second time, maybe like, I like this archetype, but my concept of this character is a little bit different than that suggesting. I don't think that they would shoot people. So I'm going to put away ballistics. I'm going to take melee. I think they'd fuck people up. I'll put a few more stats into resilience for that. And then by the third time, you know, you're fully swimming and swapping them. And then you might even just look at the back to be like, okay, well, I know how to do a substitution character generation, but how do I just do this from the ground up? Because what I'm thinking of as like, you know, my space dominatrix character or my like space tiddlywinks pro or my space billiards ace, you know, they've got something fully unique to them, and I'm not going to roll with an archetype that already exists. And you're going to be able to put all that together. And ideally, that's going to happen within a few creations of character. 
and ideally we're going to get you playing the game long enough to do that a few times. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I would just say kind of to sum that up is Chain Stars really is a game that you can do a one-shot of. The GM probably has to do some prep, but the players really don't. It's going to take you 10 to 30 minutes to make a character tops, and you can do that right before you start, and you can spend the next four hours having a blast. In awesome. I was going to say, it sounds like this character creation is really modular, which makes it kind of easy, so that is also a great joy to hear, because again, sometimes character creation can really be a slog. So, I mean, if it's just, hey, I like yeah. this, I like that, and it's just an easy thing to convert, then awesome. Yeah, that's what I'm shooting for. I want this to be quick and easy, but with build freedom and depth. And customization. You can make very particular builds, and because... So there's talent trees, but they only go up to level two. And the only requisite is... There's like six to a tree, right? Okay. Three tier one, three tier two. If you're taking a certain kind of archetype, you can begin the game with two talents. Which means as long as you stack in the same tree, there's actually no talent in the game that you can't begin with a care gen. So if you really know, I want to go Unity talent tree and I want to build a character who can be taking the edge accrued from other characters and doing this stuff in movies to get it. Like, if you like have a very strong concept for a character which will fundamentally change the mechanics of how some encounters play out, you can fucking do that. That's probably not going to be your first character. But hey, if, you, if you're if you the person who loves to read the character and see what can I do with my build, it absolutely could That's be. That's really, really cool. And I have to give mad props to whoever the space tiddlywinks player is because it's hard to play tiddlywinks in zero G. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to want exo maneuvering from the void born tree. And... <laughs> All right, so I have noticed that you decided to build this game on a D6 system. Yeah. So why did you decide to go with a D6 system instead of, say, a D10 or a D20 system? Pretty simple. So, like, I've not been the biggest fan of D6 dice pools because the numbers can inflate. Uh, and just, just too many damn dice. Anybody who's played a game like Shadowrun knows what I'm talking about. Too many damn dice. D20 systems, nice. I have never liked 5% modulation on two hit. I would not use a D20 if that was not the dominant die type in the world. So I don't see myself ever designing a D20 game. D10s, I like D10s. I like D100 systems, in fact. But they're not as quick to think about and resolve as throw a D6. Hey, did that dice come up a six? Otherwise, you don't care. And there's a side pool where you care about ones. But like the fundament is incredibly straightforward because it's a roll for success system. But the question of did I succeed on this uncontested test is just do you see literally any sixes? Because if so, the answer is yes. And maybe that is a yes and because you suffered a shock because you have ones in your edge dice maybe that is a yes and also because you have extra sixes to send spend on twists but it's just really straightforward you add a stat you add a skill we thought about it you cannot i really like the idea of mixing matching stats and skills to create different kinds of tests i think it's immersive you have to generate and think about a new number that is not fast in play however simple it sounds when you design the game it just is not i have learned this quite definitively <laughs> so you have one stat it goes to one skill Theoretically, you could dream root and call for them, but if rules is written, there are no pure stat calls. There are only skill calls. You will know exactly how much is rolled for, say, melee. You'll add resilience to your melee skill points. That is your melee roll, period, done. That fundamental number is only going to shift when you buy skill points. There might be modifiers on top of that to how many dice you roll for what weapon you have, what conditions you're under. But you can look at a sheet, and you can see every skill, and it'll show you exactly how many dice you go for it. You pick that up. You pick up your edge dice. You throw them. Bam. Done. I like it. Right, so here we are talking about twists and edge and shock again. So can you... Right, right. Now is the time where, can you please go into a little bit more detail and explain <laughs> what a twist is and what edge is and what shock is? 
Here's the quick and dirty. So you are an ordinary person doing extraordinary things in space. Uh, yeah, Dirk Dickjaw is probably never going <laughs> to flinch his life, God. right? He has probably only ever cried, you know, like once to like a classic rock song. And the only time he has an emotion is when he is vengeful. Even when he's having sex, he's just sort of stoically like, ah, <laughs> I'm pounding. Like, you know, so... That's not the characters in Change Stars. You're going to play somewhat... There's ways to mitigate this. Based on what you play, you could play the synth non-variant to avoid this. They don't have edge or shock. They have a different system called processing. But by default, you are a living being which can get scared, frightened, and fuck up. And there is a push-your-luck, more or less gambling side pool that will increase your dice known as edge. You begin play at zero edge. Certain things that can happen, failing certain rolls... And choosing to do the reroll mechanic that's always available to you, unless you triggered a shock, called reaching, all increase it by one. So let's say you have six dice on a test. That's pretty good, but if you've played a D6 dice pool game, you know where this is going. You came up with no hits. Unfortunate. Well, you can reach. For no money down on your truck trailer, you can just grab those dice, add one edge dice into your edge pool, throw all of them. Now you just rolled 76, and I've let you do a reroll. So that's what? Total of 13 attempts to get a success? And that is true of any test you do in the game. There's an incredibly free and easy reroll. That's wonderful. I wonder what the catch is. Here's the catch. Those edge dice can help you succeed, right? Because you're getting more on edge. You're more adrenalized. You're more in the moment. You're feeling the rush. But if those dice come up a one, the only time when you give a shit about like the other side of the dice that isn't a six, if the edge dice come up a one, you have suffered a shock. How many ones are showing depicts the level. A level one shock is normally something like you do like a vague fuck up and you give edge to those around you because like, oh dude, what are you doing? And you're like, ah, no, no, sorry, I'm, just, I'm pushing stuff over, like something's happening, I'm freaking out, but I'm getting this stuff done. Maybe you drop something, maybe something like that happens, but it's not going too bad for you yet, but you do have a minus two until the end of your next turn to a relevant test of whatever you just did. So if you shot a gun and got a level one shock, that's a minus two to your next shot as you're trying to regain control and focus. If you were piloting, same thing there. Trying to fix stuff, maybe the next time you go going to fix stuff right after that, you're having a bit of a time. Tier twos is when you start to do things like ammo dump, drop your weapon, sort of freak out a little, and gain edge more. So you've shocked yourself and you're gaining more edge. And tier three, we're talking going catatonic, completely just hiding in a corner, out of the action. Tier three plus is you are out of the action for more or less the scene, if not longer, unless someone comes along and gives you a communicate test to try and snap you out of it. And maybe that's an option. Maybe that's not, depending on what the shock winds up being. There are suggested shocks and there's a default shock, so you can run it very quick and easy. But one of the more creative things the Dreamweaver does is determine what that shock means for that test in the moment. Oh, very nice. And I like the fact that you've brought some psychology into this as well. I think that tends to get overlooked or glossed over in a lot of games. So I'm kind of excited to see that work in an aspect. I think it violates part of the power fantasy, the thought that your character might do something that you didn't tell them to or that is against your personal vision of the hero. But I think if we do a good job forming expectations, it's going to create a satisfying experience where even you don't know what might happen and now you're having to handle your shit, right? right? A very relatable thing, particularly for people who are maybe new to extreme isolation for the past two years for, oh, I don't know, some particular reason outside. (laughs) Yeah, something that I have many years of experience with already, you understand what it means to have to handle your shit. One of the core four stats in this game is empathy. And the skills that govern are communicate, insight, and resolve. And resolve is like your force of will. 
certain tests will force a shock on you or a force edge on you. Like if you're taking suppressing fire from an automatic weapon, that shit's scary. Oh, yeah. You're suppressed. If you're lit on fire, you're suppressed. And when you become suppressed, you have to make a resolve roll. And there are ways around this. If you're like, well, my character is very low on empathy, but they're very steely. There are talents you can take that can shift it over to your cognition stat and your scrutiny skill test to be able to rationalize and get your way through what would be a resolve test for you otherwise. But you are burning a talent on that. By default, living creatures are frightful and need to handle the dangers of fire and bullets and electric shocks and shit like that. And if they cannot emotionally take over that in the moment, they're going to suffer consequence on top whatever damage was done to them. And that is something that we think is going to give an opportunity for a different form of character and a different type of ideal to shine through. Like, there are support things that are going to help you get people through their shock, but maybe if you fuck up your attempt to help them, you have to suffer that as well. So there are some risk-reward talents there. There are some risk-reward builds. And there is one type of build which literally, if you have the talent, an ally within a certain range gains an edge, you can take that edge instead. Nice. Yeah, which as you can imagine, quickly builds your edge, which this is going to sound a little weird, but y'all are familiar with like Final Fantasy Limit Break, yeah. right? That's sort of a anime moment thing. Oh yeah, the fun part. There is a mechanic in the game called an edge break. You get it from your archetype. Right now, you just have one for your character's whole existence. We're talking about as a long-term progression, letting you get more edge breaks in your arsenal. But basically, you do something impossibly cool stroke badass. Like, let's say you do three pilot maneuverings at once. Or you shoot your gun, and rather than having to roll, every dice you'd roll automatically comes up a success. Because you have dead eye. Or you have, uh, you are already dead. And yes, you did used to be called Omeo Amoy Shinderu. People complain until I changed it, but uh, <laughs> it, it gives you an automatic hit on a melee test that you get to make as a side action instead of the main action, which is normally where attacks live. And let's say you also have the red typhoon talents. So you're in the middle of people, you activate that, and you just automatically hit all of them for as much as you can. That's pretty powerful, but here's the cost. You get rid of all your edge. It is the release. It is the climax of yourself coming to the brink. You've edged this far, and now it's all over. You dump all the adrenaline on this act. And then you roll all the dice, and anything that doesn't come up with six from your edge dice on that roll, after you've enjoyed the benefits of the edge break, counts as a shock. And the normal period where you can trigger an edge break is seven edge. Humans get to do it at five. Okay. You're all but guaranteed to get a level three plus shock. Right. And you are then going to be taken out for at least the scene, potentially like even worse consequences. And you're going to get a lingering psychological trauma, which in this game, we don't necessarily track with traumas, we track your copes. And by default, you're going to get an unhealthy cope. And that cope is going to live with your character until such time as you convert it to a healthy cope. And potentially down the road, you might be able to totally get rid of a cope, but that's not in the game right now. Right now, it's a question of how you're living with it. So this is like, for a level three shock to happen to your character, that's something that in a one shot you may not care about as much, but for a campaign, absolutely. Like you're thinking, how am I going to move forward with this? It sounds fairly similar to the concept of stress in the game, Those Dark Places. I haven't actually played it. I listened to an interview with the creator over on DDG Pod, mm -hmm. and yeah. that is a similar thing where if something goes wrong, you pick up stress, and the more stress you have, the more prone you are to having something go wrong. For sure, and what keeps it from being a death spiral is that these edge dice will help you more often than they will hurt you, right? Right. Until you get to a certain critical mass, but when you get to critical mass, you have a release. So absolutely. And there's a few games that do that. Alien RPG. We did a summer of Alien RPG. We played a lot of it on the channel. Yeah. We enjoyed it. One really of the big pretty cool people. That book looked absolutely beautiful, by the way. The Alien RPG it book. Did. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It, it looks very pretty. 
It looks very pretty. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, we uh, we absolutely looked at mechanics like that and push luck mechanics and things like bennies that give you rerolls because one of the big game design things of the current cycle, right? Or not even the current cycle, but last cycle was taking ideas from these other systems like the Benny and like, okay, how do we give people rerolls? How do we let people roll more than once and take the better results? How do we modulate? How do we cause more dice to clock around rather than giving static bonuses? Because static bonuses for people who played 3.5, uh, I know Pat's a bit of a defender. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. And there are modifiers to the dice pool. I would argue that modifying a dice pool is a little different because it's like, I bloop in more dice. I take out more dice. But I try and minimize that in space combat and get a little thick. But basically, mechanically, I like that sort of push your luck. I like a sense of gambling. I like a sense of pushing your luck. I like rerolls because rerolls mean that I didn't give you a 12d6 dice pool because that's what you would need to reasonably be kind of certain you'd be hitting, right? I just let you reroll those 66 but you're taking on the edge as well, which is now 76. But it's also, it's a step forward. It's not necessarily a step back, but it's a step to the side. And you are on a teetering Indiana Jones style riding out rope bridge. You know, you're running closer to the edge. Yeah, no, I think having that edge pull is a relatively clever way to throw in some cost for that reroll. I think that was very well done on your part. Because if you do it, you have a Final Fantasy problem of, I'm not going to use my special item, my Phoenix Down, my blah, 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 because I don't know when I'll need it. If you do like, oh, well, you have inspiration, that'll work for you once. Right. So we've talked a lot about what Edge is and how Edge can work and, you know, a little bit on what the shocks are. So can we address the twists a little bit? Certainly, certainly, certainly. As I understand it, you get twists whenever you have more than one success on a test. Correct. So what all can you do with twists? And my big question is, can you bank them or do you have to use them on the roll? In a sense, you can put them to a plus one modifier to a future test. Okay. But so, okay, let me put it this way. There are universal twists. There are some twists that are particular to like combat, like a certain kind of attack, per se. Like if you get a super twist on a range attack, you can invoke bleed on an enemy, right? Because you've just shot them so bad, there's blood going everywhere now. Pat really fucked up a big scary monster that way once. It was like a floating, like low gravity plant thing. It was really cool. Anyway, there are a few different things that you can do with a generic, like do something faster, conduct stuff more convertly, gain one more edge, look good doing it, gain additional information, give one or more resources to one of the creature attempting this test. So, like if you, because there are no saves as an independent concept, but you could map them if you wanted to in the following fashion. In like an OSR game, let's say you'd have physical evasion mental saves, right? And if you say playing a Kevin Coffer game, there's the saves you're going to have. Well, we have skills that more or less map to them. Endurance under resilience for your physical, maneuver under alacrity for your evasion dodgy deck save, and resolve under empathy for your mental saves. And if a group is subjected to that, be let's say there's a rock slide or something falls out from under you and you get extra successes, you can spend those twists as helping your friend get out from under that. Okay. okay. And what you're overwhelmingly saving against, I mean, saving is not the concept of the game, but it's save is sort of a universal language now in tabletop, right? Like you get what I'm saying when I say a save. Right. Like in, in another game, you'd have a save against a trap, right? Everyone roll their own dexterity. You did good. Somebody else did bad. Well, sucks to be them. There's a static and a variable damage. So like the Dreamweaver is going to roll some dice, but there's also a set amount of damage coming at you. So there are no sleeper hit sleepers in the damage department and the danger department, right? So let's say it winds up the case that there's a static two damage, rolled six, winds up with four damage coming at you. Now it's contested where basically each success you're getting is knocking out a damage coming at you. You get more than you need and your friend doesn't. 
you can push over success to them. So in that sense, a twist can be shared. And if you tell the Dreamweaver, like, yeah, I would like to have this twist go forward and do something extra cool. Like, let's say you're studying a computer system before you hack it, then absolutely, maybe you could get an extra twist on the hack and you've gone into it. Because the idea is eventually you'll be suggesting what the twists are and the Dreamweaver will be hearing you out or the Dreamweaver will be suggesting bespoke twists for certain tests. Okay, yeah, I was pack- going to bring up like one of my questions, like, is there going to be like a packet of confetti or a little party popper? Like, what happens if I sit there and I roll and I roll a Yahtzee and just everything comes up all six or something like that? You know, it's like, is there a limit to how, there, how much twist I can twist? <laughs> there isn't, and there's something called a super twist, where if you have three successes, like not even, so four sixes have to have shown up to get a super twist, right? You succeed with undeniable style and grace, and you automatically succeed the next time you attempt this exact same task. So the next time you try and do the exact same task, you'd get an automatic one success. Okay, that's cool. So, and you can twist on top of super twisting. If you just absolutely Yahtzee the house, all straight sixes, then Mark of the Beast is all over the table right now. <laughs> you, you are going to have a great time. You're going to be able to do cool okay, stuff. Okay, awesome. Real quick, coming back to Pat, again, I've really enjoyed the art diagrams that you have in the book. They kind of remind me, again, going back to those old sci-fi where you'd have the pen and ink art in the start of each chapter and stuff like that. Yes. Is the book going to be filled with art? Are there full pages? Or is it just little clips here and there? Is there going to be a separate additional art oh. thing that's available if we really, really enjoy the art? Yes, actually, I think there's there, is. Act- there is going I, to be... Sorry, what, what were you saying? Should I cover this? Because I feel like this is actually technically my department. No, no, no. I I can do this. So there is actually going to be an art book that comes along with it. And it's going to be filled with not just my black and white illustrations that you'll see in the book. You will also find a lot of the preliminary art that I've done over the years trying to flesh out what these species look like and such. So you'll see a lot of the inspirational stuff that I was doing early on. And then you'll also have a bunch of the black and white illustrations, all the ones in the book, in the little art book that we were selling separately. But in the book itself, yes, there's going to be tons and tons of my black and white illustrations. Basically, um, we're just going to try and give you an illustration that shows you what everything looks like for pretty much everything in the book. I've already done a massive quantity of illustrations. We're going to fit in the book any way we can. And we're going to have illustrations for everything from vehicles, spaceships, equipment. And then we're going to have a lot of those nice scene illustrations, too. So like, you know, a Rastian marketplace, a Barracuda vessel, cargo vessel docking with the station, one of the large, like, you know, uh, space stations out on the frontier. There's going to be a ton of art. Awesome. And I do really love the art. That was the first thing that really drew me into this particular project when you were starting to really push it on Self-Promo Saturday is the art that you would push out with your promos because it does have that feel of the old 80s, 90s tabletop games. Mm-hmm. I got a real strong... My first tabletop game was Paranoia 2nd Edition. Oh, nice. And so the art style was very evocative of what was in that book. Yeah. And so it just pulled me into that place and I loved it. Yeah, those were the first books I was reading. Like when I was growing up, I, I sat my butt in borders after every day at school and I just read those old RPG books and drank some coffee and returned them by the time they were closing. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I just, I loved the art. I loved the world building. And that's the kind of energy I'm carrying forward into this. You know, that classic art style, classic evocative world building, depth and richness to the cultures and a modern ethos going forward into it and modern role-playing game mechanics that are geared 
towards a modern audience and a nostalgic audience as well. Excellent. Okay, so my last question is, what sort of supplements for Chain Stars have you got in the works that you can tell us about? We understand that there may be things that are still so early in development that you don't really want to spoil them yet. But if you got anything coming up that you would like to put teasers out for, now is your time. Uh, Let me start this one off and then I'll pass it over to Lee because I'm sure Lee has some thoughts too. So first off, we have uh, a couple of adventures that we've been working on, actually. I think uh, we have a lot of ideas and uh, a lot of our first kind of expansionist stuff is going to be um, adventure paths to... You got the book, right? And you love the lore. You're maybe not sure how to implement that or turn it into adventure. Well, we got you. We've been doing this for a year and a half now because like, you know, Change Stars isn't actually ancient. We've got a, a couple adventures that we've run or that we've been considering running and we're going to make those into uh, adventures. I believe we have like five or six floating around and one of them's already more or less made called Ardent Descent that we've made. We can talk more about that. But the first thing I think we're going to do is some adventures. And then, kind of depending on when we get around to it, there's mentions of at least three to four other alien species in the book that we don't necessarily have the time to dive into culturally, like I have with all the other very fleshed out species in the book. And we will cover those as well. The core species that we've got in the main book are the Thren, humans, Mirai, the Trinity. And then we've got the Rast of the Rastian Confederation. And then the Newsfly, who don't necessarily have a united polity. And then the Veer, who have several. Since? and Oh yeah, and Synths, but they're not necessarily uh, a species. They're a playable, I guess, synthetic species, but they don't necessarily reproduce. So. Not biologically. Yeah, mechanically, mechanically a species, yes. but, you know, not necessarily. Not as- yeah, but then we'll also be expanding on a couple of the others that are in the backstory or like, on the periphery. And there's a whole, space is huge, and everything that you see takes place in a small portion of the Orion's arm. So there's other parts that we want to um, uncover as time goes on, and we'd be introducing some other species like these pet species, the bees, uh, the moose token, and, uh, you know, maybe some others. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are bringing a ton of depth to this, which is really exciting to hear. Oh yeah, there's a lot of world building, we just have to make sure that we parcel it into bite-sized pieces. (laughs) And Lee, you can go now if you've got thoughts. Yeah, so there's basically a mechanic. We've thought a lot about how do you know what kind of parties exist in the world. If you're playing a game like D&D, everybody has their own conception of fantasy land and meeting taverns or whatever, right? Pretty easy springboard. If you are playing alien RPG, well, maybe you are space truckers, maybe you are corpos, maybe you are marines, that's sort of there. But you're riffing off movies, so you have a basic conception. This role-playing game is probably going to be your first exposure to the world of Chain Stars, right? In a significant fashion, because it's the first major piece that we're putting out about it. We have these concepts known as campaign frames with things like, for example, if you want to be free merchants, there is a mechanic whereby you have a group ability you can choose to trigger once per job, because we're assuming you're doing jobs under that circumstance, where you can ignore the effects of edge, or you can do it for the negative effects of edge, right? You can ignore shocks for one turn because you're doing it for the job. You're doing it to make sure that you make it through, right? And that'll refresh at job completion. There's similarly going to be frames for if you want to be Trinity Fleet Intelligence, up to some spycraft. If you want to be in the criminal underworld, if you want to be Trinity Marines, engaged in peacekeeping or various spec ops. Those right now live as Dreamweaver section shorts, but I have dozens of pages on them and they can't possibly fit in the book, which is already pretty stuffed that we're going to have, you know, physically printed. 
So we are probably going to, in the future, be looking to, in terms of splats, in terms of extra content, put out dedicated splats that are things like, here is the extended space splat. You're scientist splat, right? If you want to be a research vessel and do research science stuff because you want kind of like a Trek vibe, we are all bridge officers or special people all board this ship or you want to do lower deck stuff, you know, that's going to be its own. And if you want to do marine stuff, the spinward front, that's going to be its own, etc., etc. And it'll be an expansion on it. There'll be things like extra weapons, extra gear, very specialized stuff that we kept off the main gear list to not clog it up. That sort of thing is going to be there. If you want more weapons, if you want more ships, if you want more NPCs, generic or special, you're going to be able to go to those. We don't have any strict timelines on those. One other thing that's in the works is the idea of, I'm assuming y'all may or may not be familiar with Knights of the Old Republic, but the way those games tended to work was you had a planet you started on, a planet or two that you like had to go through, right? But then it opened up you did several other plants in whatever order you wanted. There was like an interrupt event between the second and third. And then you actually had a scenario at the very end. I want to do something like that for the first quote-unquote adventure path, which is going to be more like an adventure web. So the idea is I'm going to create a module that has many a main quest, side quests, many ways to do it. But you're more or less, the party is stranded on a planet, you want to get off because it's not a great place to be. And that ends with more or less, spoiler warning for the future, you gain a really cool spaceship. And be included into a uh, pan Orion's arm conspiracy. And then there's going to be like three or four other adventure web books and other systems, which you can use to run just adventures in that system, or you could use to hook into the campaign. And then there's going to be a climax one after you've done a majority of them or all of them. And they're going to be released as individual modules. So the idea being, if you want a campaign, you can use them as a campaign. If you want a fertile ground to do one shots off of these side quests, you can do that instead. If you want to start a different sort of campaign, but you want to use it as a springboard, that's going to be an option. And if you don't find a certain planet or conceit interesting, you just don't incorporate that into your implementation of the web, and you don't offer that as a choice for the players to work through. All right. I like that sounds like some really good hooks, so yeah. Yeah, I'm always a big fan of options. Yes. Yeah, that's the ambition. We'll see how it plays out. We're still we're new to the module writing game. I'm a very improvisational DM. Pat plans a lot, but like, you know, campaign notes aren't always something that you can turn around and sell like a right. module, right? Yeah, also Pat plans tend to be long monologues and then like vague pinpoints. <laughs> Right. So even if we have notes, we don't necessarily have modules that we have like posed together. So we've done, I've done Art and Descent. I did the back of the quick start scenario, moon base layover. But yeah, we're busting the adventure world and we've got lots of ideas for splats in the future for uh, yeah incorporating the other sapien species in Orion's arm as playable, expanding off of lore. It's going to depend a lot on what people like, what they want to see and how uh, the audience grows and reacts. Who winds up buying Change Stars? Who winds up getting it and then playing Change Stars? We're going to have an ear to the ground and we have an active discord with community space for change stars we've got dev streams we are very in tune with a lot of our backers although there's many more probably have not heard from us since the latest kickstarter update which we're trying to be very regular with the roadmap is more or less going to be fluctuating based off of what i really think is going to get game mm -hmm. all right james you got anything else i had a kind of a slightly off you know not necessarily for the thing but i was going to ask pat if she has read you said you had a largely like them you said queer themed campaign have you read the book seven eves Seven E's. Yes. Um, oh, wow. I have not actually. It's a huge tome, but it's a fairly decent sci-fi. It came out uh, in, I want to say, 2015, 2016, I think. But yeah, it was a decent story. It might be along your lines of interest. Oh, I'm, I'm looking at the Wikipedia right now. It looks very interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's got an audiobook, too. That's my one qualifier. <laughs> 
Drawing and uh, reading are actually, sadly, two activities that cannot occur at the same time. So I always look for audiobooks. Yeah, I, I know exactly how you feel because... I can't edit audio and listen to a podcast at the same time. So Exactly. <laughs> you know the struggle. I can only focus on one podcast at a time and this is the one I have to work on, so <laughs> I know. It's horrible because like actually one of the main contributors to the uh, layout of the book so far, Luke Yard great friend did a lot of the design work on like logos and stuff to help me on a huge way on change stars he's publishing a book which i'm going to provide a series of illustrations for once i'm finished with change stars as illustrations and he's got this book and i even have like a, a wink wink nudge nudge character in there you're directly at me and i haven't had the chance to read his goddamn book yet <laughs> i'm gonna fucking illustrate the damn thing and i got credit <laughs> I've read, like, the first chapter. It's great. I can't wait to read the rest, but I'm swamped. <laughs> right. All right. I think we've reached the end of the interview portion. So one of the things we like to do with our guests whenever they come on is we have a random generator monster mashup dice table, and we like to create a creature on the fly with our guests. So if you guys are up for it and you got some dice... I do. Because there's two of you, I'm going to let you decide between yourselves who rolls what when. With this, I do want to preface with a quick question because we generally try to keep the creatures within theme. So do we want to do a fantasy type creature or are we going to try to go bend this more towards a sci-fi? We are going to go space opera full Okay, let's, let's do it. I oh, just yeah. wanted to know what kind of car I was getting into. We, oh yeah, oh yeah. This is, it's not a car. This it's car goes spaceship. to space, James. Cargo space? No. Cargo road. S cargo space. All right. So, what is making that noise in our cargo bay? (laughs) Who's that Pokemon? (laughs) It's it's Hull Breach. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. Let's go ahead and get started. And somebody give me a D4 roll for this thing's form of locomotion. All right, Pat, do we want every other one this? Or? Yeah, sure. I'll go first. Um, I got a three. A three. It burrows. Ooh. Okay. I love it. We've got some Zerglings or, you know, a Graboid Spice Worm. Hot, hot. <laughs> nice. Kiki Key Zerg Rush? Absolutely. All right. Next is going to be a D6 roll for what does it eat? Ooh, what does it eat? Let's look at that diet. I'm looking at a three. A three. It eats insects slash vermin. All right. Mm. Oh, no. Maybe it hunts the Mirai. <laughs> okay. I'm going to trust you on that because I don't know the lore of your world, so... The Mirai are the insectoid species. They're not vermin, but they're kind of an insectoid humanoid okay, so like a natural predator? Like maybe a homeworld predator? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, next up is going to be a D8 roll for the size. Well, let's see if it actually does that. I think this will probably be important. <laughs> it is a one. It is diminutive. Never mind. Oh no, that just oh. makes it more horrifying. Yeah. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> They're swarm creatures. <laughs> oh god. Oh, god. They're flesh burrowers. Yeah. Oh. That's, exactly. Really oh, well done. Oh, no. well, well done. The We're hard talking... dip to horror. The hard dip to horror. The hard horror. It's oh, like god. the, uh, there's different species of wasps that lay eggs on different types of caterpillars. Oh, yeah. I had a mothership game about that. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, and then whenever they hatch, they eat their way out. Parasitoid yeah. activity. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, these are terrifying. <laughs> these monsters get scary fast. <laughs> they really do. All right, so next up is going to be a D10 roll for the number of limbs. Wait, that's on you. 
That's a six. Six? It's got six limbs. Okay, so we've got, you know, a fairly standard insectoid, basic arthropod, mm-hmm. looking at mm-hmm. it so far. Nice, nice. Yeah, so, and that still keeps the theme, because if the dominant race of this homeworld is this sapient insectoid race, then that would imply that, you know, there are other yeah. prominent insectoid species on this planet. Absolutely. They, they came up out of somewhere, yeah. And then the next one is another D10 roll for the number of eyes. Four. Okay. Okay, it's got four eyes. I'm imagining like (laughs) a, what's it called? A quadrilateral symmetry? Okay. Oh, God. Or or just wears glasses. Amazing. Yeah, I've drawn a Mariah with glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I like where it's going. Next is going to be a D12 roll for its method of defense. Oh, goodness, we roll well. We're looking at a four. A four? It has a stinger. Ah! God. Yeah, so, it burrows uh, into sting. Oh, God. Uh, we really are creating. I'm thinking like a wasp or maybe like a foodborne parasite oh. type thing. Oh, no. Gross. <laughs> but see, the stinger pairs well with that burrowing. It does. Because that would be the adult stings and injects, and then in its larval stage, it burrows. Yeah, no, I can see that. I think these things look kind of earwig-like. Yeah. They're crawling in. And... That's just squicky. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. And next up is a D20 roll for quirks. Two. Two. Hey, we just had this one. Mimic is able to appear as another creature common in the environment. Oh, that's fucked up. Again, no, this is perfect, especially like if it burrows and it's eating other insects. And so if it's like parasitic, maybe it lays in wait like a tick or something and then it burrows into the flesh. So it's like a hookworm in that sense, you know, where it's just like it gets stepped on and just kind of works its way in. Chiggers. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> I, hate, I hate chiggers. Yeah. <laughs> they are the well, worst. Yeah, I've fortunately not had to experience them. I hope they don't. <laughs> I, I got into some a couple weeks back going hiking, and oh boy. Yeah, in Tennessee, they were a feature of the uh, riverbeds. Not a friendly uh, kind of tick. To, no, no, absolutely not. My Florida friend complains about them all the time. All right, so now we're going to make it weird. So we need a D100 roll. Lee, you're on this. A Lee100 roll, if you will. <laughs> that's a look at the chef. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, a 49. A 49. 49. Almost nice. Oh, interesting. Causes serious anaphylaxis reaction if eaten. Oh. Oh, oh God. <laughs> these things are fucked up. <laughs> Beautiful. I like the yeah, so, so these are don't bite me. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, don't bite me. They, they bite you. Yeah, the other way around. <laughs> I feel like it also might be like they put anaphylactic shock, like their venom triggers anaphylactic shock, and it's just like when you eat them, if you haven't deliberately removed it, the, you eat the venom. Oh, kind of like a steak yeah. bug, maybe? Yeah, like if you if yeah, you, like if you consume okay. it, you're going to get the dose either way. Okay. Yeesh. Yeah, and if you consume it, then it's not localized. I mean, it, it goes into your digestive system, and then it goes through your entire bloodstream. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and you're getting, you're getting your entire fucking venom sack, so yeah, no, you're probably having a bad time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And we like to do two of these, so... <laughs> if you want to do another D100 roll... Uh, Pat, do you want to take it? All right. Okay, yeah, sure, why not? Do, 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 1D100. Five. Five. All right. <laughs> Diamatic display has a pattern that can be displayed quickly to startle predators, often appearing as large predatory eyes. 
Oh. That would definitely be the adult version. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I'm definitely seeing this have multiple life stages. Which again falls in perfect with the whole insectoid theme. So yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Oh my goodness, this oh. thing's terrifying. We've yeah. really created a monster. Yeah, we've, we've had some nightmare fuel on this segment <laughs> in the past. All right, so just a quick recap. It burrows, it feeds on insects or vermin. It is diminutive in size. It has six limbs, four eyes, a stinger. It can mimic another creature common in the environment. It causes serious anaphylaxis when eaten, and it has diamatic display, so it has the appearance of predatory eyes as a defense mechanism. Goodness. Yikes. So what are we going to call it? I think Don't Bite Me is perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of a better name. I mean, that, that works unless you've got something better. Yeah, that's a great colloquial name for it. I don't know if we wanted true, to true. try and come up with some sort of a more scientific name or not. Okay, all right. Yeah, if we're doing the scientific route, uh, I could say... Uh, the venomous don't bite us. <laughs> um, Lee, we need to call Madeline in here real quick. We yeah, get, get, the, the, get Latin. the Latin. Yeah, we can never pull any shit with Latin because we've got two people very familiar with the language in our Sunday group. Yeah, we've got two Latin students in our like immediate group helping create change stars. So we, we can't really fuck around with Latin on the channel so, without people getting back to us. When she reads this, or listens to it, she's probably going to be like horrified. <laughs> so do like any reasonable scientist cheat and go Greek. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I would say uh, undentatus parasiticus. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I like it. Sounds technical. It's yeah. Madeline again is going to freak out, but it's not actually uh, anything real. <laughs> so this thing's going to burrow in as a larval stage and then maybe hatch like a wasp stage with the stinger and that's how it lays its eggs. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm seeing it more as the wasp stings and implants the eggs and then the eggs yeah. hatch within. Okay, that works, yeah. Over positive style. Yeah. And then when they approach adulthood, they chest burst or... They burrow out. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, and it probably like targets feet because it probably burrows in the ground in the adult form too and it, it must target the lower extremities. Ooh, or if it's a native predator of the Mirai, maybe it targets their abdomens, which sometimes are low-hanging. Oh, no. Okay, I can see that. Or yeah. the botflies, where they look for any kind of, like, wound, and they just kind of inject oh, the larva oh, into a wound. God. Oh, Fucking fallout God. horror stories, yeah. <laughs> they, so did we just make Cazadors? I think we just made Cazadors. <laughs> Baby Cazadors. <laughs> Talk about absolute terror of the wasteland. Yes. All right. So I think I feel pretty good about, well, I don't feel good about it, but (laughs) I feel confident that that we have reached a good stopping point on on this particular endeavor. Um, So so another thing that we like to do whenever we invite guests on is to have them give a shout out to someone else in the community, be they a creator, an artist, a streamer, a podcast. Yeah. Uh, I would shout out Zin Never Dies, coming to Kickstarter soon. A really cool dark fantasy yet cute system, which is designed to be eminently playable. And also it's got like a really interesting approach to magic. It is by Nemo. Nemo is reading, I believe is there at on Twitter. Check him out. Check it out. It is super beautiful. Yes, it is. Yeah, you actually beat me to it. I was also going to shout out Zin Never Dies. <laughs> so I have to think of something new. Uh, and my go-to when I'm thinking of something new is to shout out my fellow streamers. Obviously, Lee and I run Diesel Shop, but we have a lot of great Twitch streamers uh, that we work with quite regularly. 
And if I may break the rules here and shout out to a couple, Milady Saito is an amazing streamer. I'll be on her channel for a special Halloween contest, judging period, the night before Halloween. And uh, you should check out her channel. She, as well as Lee, uh, also appear on Tabletop Anthologies, another friend of our channel. Very great people. They have a Pirates Conan game that's going on strong. Very fun to watch. And then what we're doing right now after this is Lee and I are going on Garbog Games, another French channel of ours, and World Builder is their handle on Twitter. But um, yeah, they're uh, they're running a Traveler game that Lee and I are both in right now. And that's fun as well. And uh, one final shout out to Party Wipe Games, who is an amazing streamer in a similar time slot to Diesel Shot. Jeez. And uh, we just absolutely love to have him and his crew on the channel with us. All right. And we'll get relevant links and stuff after we wrap up so we can put them all in the show notes. Good recap. And then real quick, before we wrap up, where can we find you guys and where can we find Change Stars online? Well, I am on Twitter as at long underscore spider. And uh, Lee, I think you've got everything Twitch. else. Twitch.tv slash diesel shot. Diesel like the fuel. Shot like you shot someone or are taking a shot. Changestars.com exists. It's got some links on it. Check that out for Change Stars goodness. And yeah, at long underscore spider for Pat at quadcore q-u-a-d-k-o-r-p-s for me and at stars changed on twitter for change stars check out pat's insta yeah we got we got an insta it's going to be the art is on pat's insta if you want constant drip feed of that and we have a discord it's linked from all those other places it's listed so just go the all my links in my bio or on the website changestars.com yeah that's it that's the full app right and we will make sure to get a copy of that url and put it in the show notes as well Well, Pat, Lee, thank you very much for joining us today on Undercommon Taste. Yes, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening to us today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, please send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message through our Twitter account, at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult Page Day calendar-inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They go up on the Twitter account. Get cross-posted the Instagram and Facebook accounts at Undercommon Taste. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. That's where all of our free and Patreon-exclusive write-ups go every week. If you want to help support the show financially, please come over and consider becoming a patron. We also have a Discord now, which you can find the link to in the show notes. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thank you, everyone, once more for listening, and stay safe. We'll see you next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dr. Mary C. Crowell. 
Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.